Yes. Episode 35 with Dr. Mark Tyndall talking about COVID-19 and the homeless population, IV drug use, dispensing, safe supply. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're on episode 35. This is unbelievable. Before jumping into it, I want to give a shout out to our many super fans out there that have done a great job at purchasing merchandise, spreading the word on social media, interacting with our crew. So a special shout out to Eileen White, Michelle Berthiom, Sarah Marsal, Rebecca Wah, Danielle Kuzar, and Dan. Just a special shout out to you guys because we love hearing from you guys. We love the fact that you guys are spreading the word. So thank you. I got one more shout out. Kim Sutton, host of the Positive Productivity Podcast. Yes. She is helping me design the new website. It's going to also help set up systems to better serve you guys and the community. Um, To learn more, actually, about Kim and her services, check the link attached to the show notes, Solving Healthcare slash Kim Sutton, and uh, she'll change the game. She's changing the boogie. All right, guys, on our latest episode with Dr. Mark Tindall, we talk about how COVID has affected the homeless population. He's works in inner city in Vancouver, so he's front lines. He's seeing the impact that's having directly. We dive into the tension COVID's created in that environment. We talk about how COVID affects supply of drugs and potentially can be more impactful than anticipated. We talk about the value of safe injection sites. We talk about how his My Safe project, which is so innovative, and I, you know, you're going to read about this in the news about how a vending machine is dispensing drugs. But when we dive into the the log- logistics and the reasoning behind it, and how it provides a safer environment for not only the patient but also for the community, um, I think this will be eye-opening for a lot of people, like literally using biometric technology for uh, his patients to be able to get a safe supply on a daily basis. Uh, I think it's just ingenious. Um, So yeah, we dive into all that. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. A little bit about Mark. Man, this guy is a warrior. He's a TED speaker. He's an infectious disease doctor. He got his uh, his master's in Clinepi from Harvard, as I think they like to say it. He's been the executive medical director of BC Center of Disease Control. He's a professor of UBC School of Population and Public Health. He has got some street cred and literally because he's front lines. He's He's right in the midst of it. So without further ado, people, Dr. Mark Tyndall. Dr. Mark Tyndall, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for asking me. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, we talked about a, a few weeks ago, it was pre-COVID, and 
I was ultra excited to talk to you about, you know, the safe supply, quote unquote, vending machine for for uh, drugs um, topic. But you have an extremely unique experience in terms of seeing what COVID-19 is doing to the marginalized population. Um, I'm wondering if we could speak to what you're seeing at ground level. Sure. Yeah. If, uh, when we did talk about uh, doing this show pre-COVID, as you say, I would never have thought we'd be in this position. I don't think any public health person would have imagined that we'd be in a, a kind of total clampdown. And um, and it's really has uh, impacted the work that I do and uh, impacted the the population that I work with more than the rest of us, basically. Mm-hmm. I have... Uh, I've kept a, a fairly low profile. I've, I've also done a, mo- a lot of my work from home. I, I do pop down there. I was down. I spent yesterday afternoon in the downtown east side around the machine. And yeah, it's heartbreaking, really. People have, they can't really follow any of the directives. There's really, for many people, there's no real home to stay clamped down in. People still have drugs that they they rely on to get and that means they're still out there hustling the sidewalks were full it's leading up to welfare day so there's a a lot of angst on the street anyways because many people have run out of money for the month and the stress is kind of a powder keg it's quite interesting that there's been maybe three or four reported cases down there but it hasn't exploded as far as illness goes and there's been very little testing so it's a still too early to know how much is circulating in that community, but it's not as though I'm walking down the street and everybody's coughing and uh, short of breath. Mm-hmm. It's some ways kind of, you know, looks fairly normal, mm-hmm. but the one strat, the one thing often gets bypassed is of all the economic slowdown that we're seeing, it also affects illegal supplies. So there's a real shortage and of drugs right now, or, pending shortages. People are hoarding them. Prices are going up, just like for any commodity. Violence is going up. Just in a three-block walk to uh, to the office yesterday, I saw two fights. And uh, wow. it's just really, you know, disturbing just to see it. So it, it has had a, a major impact on the population, the living down there, but mm-hmm. it could be way worse in uh, in a few weeks from now. Yeah, it's interesting to hear your perspective because I would have guessed, knowing that you know, sorry, I'm trying. I don't, I don't know. What, I I don't want to keep calling them marginalized. I, I don't know what the term like. How do I refer refer yeah, to? It's a good question. People who use, I mean, people who are using drugs, but <laughs> okay, yeah, like the people that are using drugs, the people that are that you're seeing, they're in close proximity. We know that there's COVID nineteen out there. And it's interesting to hear that it's not clearly passing through them. Like, you know, you're not seeing a lot more illness, at least yet. I don't know if that would be intuitive to most people. Like, is that what you were expecting at this stage? Well, everybody's gearing up. I mean, a lot of the harm reduction programming and the community services have all cut back in re- in response to this. The supervised injection site that I work with used to have 12 tables. Now there's six. Um, they're supervising mm. outside now. The oxygen usage has been 
extremely capped and reduced for fear of spreading virus. So there's been quite a lot of preemptive work done down there, uh, ready for something to happen. But the timing is still unclear. It, you know, and it's not totally beyond the realm of possibility that it, it won't hit it big time. But mm-hmm. I, everything that we know about transmission and the factors that lead to, you know, quite large outbreaks are all in place in in this community. So, you know, exactly. Yeah. And that's why, I, you know, maybe it is early, maybe it's, maybe it's just part of their protoplasm because we do know that like, there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers and are low symptom burden. And, yeah. you know, I, I'd imagine, you know, the people you're seeing, there's a, a variety of ages, but including young patients that aren't necessarily hypertensive, diabetic, obese, you know, kind of the yeah. factors that we're seeing associated with. Although there, COVID. you know, clearly there's a lot of, you know, morbidity in that population. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, everybody smokes cigarettes. Yeah. There's uh, just a lot of lung disease already in that population. I would say that's the number one mm-hmm. morbidity in that, in that is respiratory, a lot of bad cardiac and problems, diabetes. So, okay you know, it's, it's not a healthy population for the most part. So uh, I do think there'd be a lot of poor outcomes for people who get exposed mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, and this not is not just the downtown East side. I'm quite familiar with, you know, smaller problems or smaller communities across Canada. They, a lot in BC and I worked in Ottawa for four years in the Byward market area. I mean, it's uh the idea that there there is some insulation to that population, so pe- you know the person who just returned from Florida isn't likely to uh, walk through the Byward Market, or you know possibly there's some insulation to that population, but mm-hmm. it's not totally insular. So it, you know inevitably there will be some virus introduced into the community. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean it's good to hear too that the measures are being made to try and reduce transmission. You've mentioned about the oxygen approach and the, the amount of people within an assessment that are being assessed at, um, at once. Like, I think that's important to mention. And, and, you know, sometimes it's all these little things that could actually make a difference. Yeah, although the direct impact of these things is bad. So people, you know, we've been promoting supervised injection sites. So all of a sudden the capacity is cut in half. We've, you know, promoting... Oh, I see. People coming, you know, coming together for food programs and trying to connect with social services and uh, all of a sudden they're closed. So it's uh, Mm -hmm. maybe it's, um, you know, it's good that something's being done directly to COVID, but the unintended consequences of this are all bad. So people don't have access to services. So, yeah, (laughs) we had Dr. Uh, Paul Offit on a couple of weeks back talking about exactly the unintended consequences. Like, you know, we talk a lot about the economic side, but you know, there's a psychological aspect too. And it's interesting hearing what you're seeing just walking to work, like almost like, is that a, a preview of things to come? Like not with, not only where you're working, but also throughout society. Cause my wife, you might hear some background noise. She just came from Costco and the the amount of time she's telling me about the tension, mm. even just going through the aisles, 
is unbelievable. And you, you, I mean, I even sense it walking outside with the kids. Like there is that level of tension. And I wonder what you're seeing is just a precursor of, of things to come, you know? Oh, yeah. I've been in the community long enough and know a lot of the faces. There certainly is built-in resilience there and mm-hmm. that people have faced, you know, they face serious adversity every day. So it's in some ways, it's just, just another thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, you know, and it's a lot, a lot to do with housing and drugs. So that's always continues to be the big driver of people's issues. And that's just now multiplied several fold. And uh, really the, the concern that people have over getting their drugs is really, uh, really major. And the people that are, you know, sending these drugs in the country over the border have the same kind of problems as everything coming over the borders. And, and it just means that uh, people will make do with even worse drugs and mix all kinds of bad things in the Mm -hmm. the street powders and things. So uh, it will trickle down to having even a more dangerous drug supply. Already the overdose numbers are starting to creep up in that community even in the last couple of weeks. And so, so uh, you're seeing that already, eh? like the, yeah. more overdoses. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just starting, but um, you know, it was all, you know, it continued to be bad in that community, but so many people had already died. I mean, it, you know, the, a lot of the most vulnerable people are already gone, but mm-hmm. the overdoses certainly were continuing, but the drug, you know, as the drugs deteriorate, people uh, will overdose more. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, Mark, uh, we were texting with a, a lawyer colleague of ours and she was saying how in Ontario anyway, they're, they're trying to get, they're trying to almost like decant the prisons, like, because they're worried about a lot of people being in close proximity and, and worried about contracting COVID and the implications that has. But as I'm hearing you talk about this, now you're having more people that may be addicted to drugs that are criminals that are now out in the community with a shorter supply, with a more dangerous supply. Like this is adding up to yuckiness for lack of a better word. Well, I think it's unethical to uh, keep people in situations in the, in jails and, and most people in pretrial that haven't even been charged yet in very, you know, dangerous situations. But it's unethical just to say, okay, we're not going to bother with it now because it could be dangerous for you in jail. Just, you know, head back out on the streets. I mean, we owe it to people to give them some options. We can't just, yeah. you know, give you a, you know, you're on your way. And, but that's what we've been doing forever anyway. So we, mm-hmm. we tend to, uh, you know, this people in pretrial and jails are often discharged with no plan. They, and that's mm. been a huge problem with the overdoses. So we take people who the first thing they do when they leave jail is search for drugs. They've been sort of detoxed, as it were, and, and they go down on their first injection. So we've always had a, a real problem with setting people up for disaster when they leave jail. And now with COVID, we need to have a plan. You just can't say that, you know, it's, we don't want to keep you here anymore. Just go find your way. As you say, that's just a recipe for disaster in the communities. Yeah. You know, maybe this is a bit of digression and we could keep this or not. I don't know, but 
what level of planning are we really doing? Like, I know it's clear, like, I'm a believer that social isolation is working. But, you know, the conversations we're talking about, the unattended consequences, I feel personally that they don't happen enough. Like, you know, aside from marginalized patient populations, you 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 do hear there's more domestic abuse. Kids, like Child Protective Services, for example, they're getting less calls because the kids don't have an avenue to be recognized. Like they often will talk to their teacher or the teacher will recognize kids that are being abused. This is not something um, we're talking about. And it's clear to me that this is a, a big issue. I wonder, just because, you know, you got that infectious disease background, like, and maybe it's not fair because you're not, in, you know, uh, but like, I mean, you do work in public health, but like, do you feel like we are thinking about these steps? Well, not enough. I think that the media has really positioned public health as those people who are counting the numbers, how many new infections they've uncovered and how many people are in the ICU and how many deaths. And then mm-hmm. on the other side, and we're seeing it more in the U.S. than in Canada, is this is all about business. This is all, you know, people are losing their jobs. We're destroying our communities. We're destroying our businesses. And so public health has sort of been positioned as those of us who are fighting to keep the numbers down. Where mm-hmm. public health, is, that may be the, should be the perspective of a hospital worker or a doctor working in an ICU. But public health, by definition, needs to take a much broader look at this rather than just counting heads and counting numbers and counting the flattening of the curve. This is our responsibility in public health is to take a more global perspective. And what are all these unintended consequences happening? And it's more than just numbers. And so I think that, you know, through no fault of some of our public health leaders who are, you know, doing, you know, what they have to do, but the media has really put pitted like those stingy health people who want to keep us all in our homes versus, you know, the more, you know, freedom loving people who want to get back to work. And so, Mm -hmm. but public health really needs to take much more nuanced approach to this, that it's not just numbers. It's really all these unintended consequences that are happening to people. And we need to start measuring those somehow. And the example you used, we need to do it. Well, how much depression, how much you know, how much sub, more substance abuse is being caused because people are staying at home now. I think it's, I mm-hmm. think it's huge. A lot of people's secret life of addiction is in their homes. And so now we're asking people to stay in their homes. So what do we expect? You know, the numbers are important, obviously, but public health is more than just that, those numbers. And uh, we need to start thinking of the long-term damage this is doing to our, our society. And I don't have any, you know, great insight into how this should all happen. I think that the idea when the population uh, level of infection is very, very low, like it is across most of Canada and certainly in British Columbia, approaching this as though everybody has it and so we need to stay away is you know, you could question if that, you know, do we have to be a little more nuanced about this? You know, testing would obviously help, but, and, you know, doing outbreak investigations as we normally do in public health. But I think we'll come to a point where if we know the population exposure is quite low at the community level, just continuing to approach this, you know, with quarantine is not going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. I really like the point you made, Mark, about 
public health is just not like it's it's more all encompassing and i think really you know like you don't see models as we said we don't see models for the unintended consequences i i mean i haven't seen one and i'm maybe i i need to search harder but to me the reason why also it's important to have the conversation is cuz maybe we could do something about it you know what i mean like maybe we could invest in you know in the uh abused house maybe we could invest in more visits to the home or virtual visits to the home maybe you know when it comes to any of the other measures we could just put some thought into it and so yeah i really i think that's a a really good point you make though about like what what it means to be involved in public health because yeah we're not having that conversation no and i don't see any endings like the homes for the aged are a good example where instead of you know, I think the lockdowns had to happen for sure. Yeah. But now the investment should be in video screens. And, you know, we have to sort of adapt to the situation. We can't just leave your relatives just, you know, alone in a in a room by themselves till they die. I mean, it's just not practical. And we can do something better than that. So uh, mm-hmm. we need to start thinking how we're going to adapt to this new model and make it, you know, reduce the unintended consequences. And when we hear our public health officials, and again, I think, you know, I, I have no criticism as far as uh, what they've been told to do and how they're conducting it. But all the media, all the questions are how many cases today? How many people in the ICU? How many dead? Oh, we're, we're flattening the curve. Isn't that great? Like, so the focus is entirely on these, on the COVID outcomes. And Rarely any questions are asked about, you know, what else is happening in society from a health perspective. You can measure how many unemployed people there are and things like that. But I think there's a lot of things we could be measuring and following better. And that by measuring them, then it could bring it up into the, you know, put it on the agenda. And then we could start Mm -hmm. seriously thinking about, you know, how we can address these and try to come up with some mediation. Yeah, no, I absolutely you're I'm definitely on the same page about that. I want to talk to you about safe supply. The work that you've done to try and provide safe drugs to IV drug users to do your part to reduce the amount of overdoses we're seeing and to get people off these medications. Where to start? Maybe a bit about like what landed you into this role, like to do this work? Well, if you if you want to <laughs> be bored with the whole history, but I mean, <laughs> I I'm an infectious disease doctor by training. I grew up in the HIV era, so when I graduated from medical school in 1985, and so I was in medical school when the first article hit about a gay disease in New York City and San Francisco in 1982. So I've sort of grown up in the HIV world my whole career. And when I was training at McMaster, I got involved in hemophiliac clinics and, and men's clinics that were essentially gay men with early cases of HIV. And then I was quite interested in international health. And so I spent four years in Kenya studying HIV prevention when there was really no, you know, the early 90s when there was absolutely no treatment, the transmission was wildfire. And the clinics I worked in basically were lineups of dying people that I could offer them nothing. 
other than a test and say that, you know, here's some condoms, try not to pass it on to others. And so those were like pretty crazy times. And I, although I moved back to Canada in the mid nineties, I still maintained research projects and collaborations in Kenya for probably a decade of work doing that. And then I took a job at the BC Center for Excellence in 1999 and in HIV. And that was really my first introduction to uh, HIV in, among drug using populations. And at that time, the downtown east side was also famous for HIV prevalence rates of 30% and things just out of control. And when I arrived at the HIV world of drug use, that, that intersection for, uh, well, I guess, over 20 years. So, and that led me to, you know, HIV prevention. I was a treater, so I was really advocating for people when treatment became, you know, more available that drug people using drugs should not be eliminated from that because when the drugs first came on, they were hard to take and needed quite a bit of support and supervision and people who are uh, using drugs were not thought to be good candidates for this. So I was pushing that, you know, we have to, it's, it's just unethical, let people die when we have treatment and we have to adapt our system to make it possible for people to take multiple drugs multiple times a day. So I was worked on that. And then um, that just led into a kind of a whole world of harm reduction. So I was involved in uh, evaluating Insight when it opened in 2003, supervised injection site, and I've kind of been at the harm reduction part of things for the rest of the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, ironically, when I took a job as leading the BC Center for Disease Control in uh, 2014, I guess, and my goal there was to try to get out of the drug use HIV world a little bit and expand my horizons. The BCCDC was doing all kinds of other things from, you know, shellfish infections to respiratory diseases to, you know, it it had a very broad mandate in public health. We had vaccines and other sexually transmitted infections. And so I was, I was trying to, you know, just my own personal growth, try to diversify and learn a bit more about that. And then soon after I took that job, the overdoses started rising and fentanyl came. So then I've been back at it, basically. And I always thought that people, the best thing we could do for people is offer them a safe supply of drugs. So right from the beginning, promoting supervised injection sites, it became clear to me that having people arrive at a supervised injection site with the pocket of illegal drugs, that 80% of the harms that were happening had already happened that day. If you were out on the street early in the morning, hustling for drugs and doing whatever it takes to get those drugs, by the time you arrived at Insight and flopped down on a chair to use them, a lot of your problems were already behind you until you left and had to find more you know, right from the beginning, I thought that, you know, we should just be giving people drugs here. It's just a crazy idea that we put people through this system that drives them into all kinds of problems with the law and they're homeless. And that if we just, we could solve that by just giving them the drugs and helping to regulate and modulate them. So I've been, you know, and I gave, I don't know, a hundred tours through Insight. And for the non-educated, one of the questions always was, well, 
don't you give drugs here? And oh no, no, we uh, we want people to go out into the alleys and you know deal from cars and buy steal bikes and sell sex. And we, we that's what we expect them to do. And then when they get here, we'll give them a smile and they can sit down with a clean needle. And like it made no, you know, when I heard myself describing what we asked people to do, it made no sense. We basically the message is don't use drugs. And this is the yeah. you know this is a little bit of think we can do instead of injecting in the rain you can come in here and less likely to share needles and if you overdose you know we can intervene but it's a pretty small offering (laughs) when you think of the whole Mm -hmm. scale of people's lives so and then it became crystal clear that when people are buying poison on the street now at least if you had a nice supply of afghani heroin in your needle you know people could you know get by and they weren't likely to overdose and you know and people can use heroin for decades and, you know, they, they get by. But then when fentanyl came and all this other stuff that people were injecting, I mean, it made no sense to set up these overdose sites and just like intervene in overdoses all day when you know they're bringing in this stuff. And we know we have alternatives. So I published something in CMAJ, I guess, 2016, say what we need is a regulated drug supply. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a safe supply, it's called now was pretty foreign to most people. That was uh, not really part of the harm reduction lexicon, a safe supply. If you talk to a lot of early activists and things, you know, everybody was kind of talking about it. It's stupid me getting these drugs from the street, but that was never really part of anybody's plan. But so over the last three, four years, I think we've really come a long way in thinking that this could actually be workable. And so, and with fentanyl, I really thought people needed a safer supply. So the one thing that we build on in Vancouver is a clinic called Crosstown, which gives injectable heroin and hydromorphone. And we've done that for a decade. It's built on two large clinical trials, Naomi and Salome, which showed that people do better when you give them drug. But I saw that it's just too limited and it's too expensive and it's not, not for everybody. So it takes a very specific person that will go three times a day and use drugs under supervision and, and hang around there. So from a public health response, we need to go beyond highly medicalized model and what would be a reasonable substitute for many opioid users who are using heroin and fentanyl would be hydromorphone pills or dillies, and that they were quite popular on the street. So after a lot of focus groups and talk, you know, I've had a lot of experience with people using drugs, and so I tend to know quite a bit about how people use drugs now, that hydromorphone would be a good good substitute for people. So I wrote a grant to Health Canada to give out hydromorphone pills over two years ago now. That was approved, but I just ran into two years of roadblocks with regulators and, but most specifically, addiction doctors and primary care doctors who basically were going in the opposite direction, that these drugs were bad, that we should not be giving them out, that we've caused a lot of damage by prescribing these drugs in the first place. and. So there was very few prescribers who were willing to give these drugs out as a safe supply. So that was a huge obstacle and continues to be a problem. And then, yeah, maybe I can pause there. I've, just, I've talked. Basically, you're saying everything I want you to say. So I, I, I mean, maybe before we talk about like 
what you're doing now. It's it's interesting. Like what's like maybe it's worth diving into. Like especially the some of the non medical folk listening. It's like really what are the consequences of not having a safe supply, not having a safe injection site? Like you know what happens. Well, I mean, uh, there's, you know, I think the downtown east side is a great, you know, kind of microcosm of, you know, forward thinking, a lot of experience down there. But our model is still highly medicalized and really based on methadone and, and more recently suboxone, which people need to understand are abstinence-based treatments. They're saying that the drugs you're using now are bad for you, that If you use these drugs under my rules, which are quite stringent, you can take these substitution drugs that you can avoid drug sickness and cravings, and you can Mm -hmm. get through your day without using drugs, but they do not get you high. And we do not want you to be high for, I think, puritanical reasons, not really medical reasons. And to me, hydromorphone or morphine or real opiates do exactly what methadone and suboxone do. They prevent withdrawal symptoms and they prevent craving, but you also get high. And that's a huge, a huge leap for a lot of treating physicians and community in general. Why should people, why are we wasting taxpayers money on some medications that actually people feel good when they take them? And we're not, Mm -hmm. we're totally not comfortable with that. You know, I kind of understand. But to me, giving somebody um, the drugs they want for to make them feel better for themselves is not that different than giving them methadone and suboxone. We know for a fact that most people on methadone and suboxone continue to use other drugs. They chip away at other drugs. There's quite a few people who have died of fentanyl poisoning who are on the methadone program. And um, mm-hmm. fentanyl especially is a very potent opiate, and you can override the blockage that methadone supplies for you. Suboxone's a little harder. But again, when we promote these substitution therapies that are highly studied, and there's, you know, they would be considered like we have a lot of evidence for how effective these are, none of this evidence is randomized trials. So when people decide to get on a program, they're ready to try a substitution therapy and other often succeed. And so a lot of physicians have a whole list of people who are doing very well on their methadone treatment. And that's great. I, I think it's great. But if they look out their window, there's so many people who aren't on anybody's program. And if you don't do my program, then I don't really, I'm not really responsible for you. I'll take you in from a clinical perspective and try and help you. But if you're a person who either didn't come in the door in the first place or have not done well on my methadone program, then there's not much more I can offer you. And uh, so Mm -hmm. I'm trying to push people to think in a more public health point of view, not just a clinical point of view. There's 5,000 people in BC who've died of overdoses in the last four years. So clearly what we're offering them is not good enough. Like we need to, we need need to get on, we need to get on this and just offering more of the same, uh, you know, really pushing more doctors to prescribe substitution therapy 
definitely has a role, but we're still going to leave a huge gap out there of people who aren't ready to do that or just not willing to do that. They use mm-hmm. drugs to numb the pain that they're feeling. And we're not, until they deal with that, then the drugs are what they want, you know, and people, you know, use these drugs for self-medication. And the people that I've, in my, you know, long experience with this, I've seen a lot of people reduce or stop using drugs entirely. And it's not because they got into some really cool treatment program. It's because something clicked in their lives. They reconnected Mm. with a kid, they got a house, they got, you know, they just had an epiphany one day that this is terrible for me, I need to get on with things. And so all of the supports we can offer people can help nudge them in that direction. But usually it's a personal decision that people make at some point that they're just not going to do this anymore. And it's often because something clicked. And for many Mm -hmm. people that I deal with, nothing clicks, everything goes in the wrong direction, their lives are just filled with trauma, and it just happens over and over. And we put them in positions where there's just no way they're ever going to catch a break. They're living in poverty, they rely on criminal activity, they're in and out of jail, they've been, you know, isolated from their families and their loved ones. And so it's a, it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking every day when I, you know, talk to people who, you know, are looking for some break, you know, and every day somebody died, or they got another illness, or they lost their housing, or it's like, it's unimaginable, just the repeat trauma that people are put through. And it's, really led by our drug policies, which say what you're doing is illegal, and uh, you better get on with things. And so many people are left behind because they just don't get on with things or they can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we we had a, a show with Dr. Turnbull about, you know, um, his clinic, uh, inner city clinic. And, you know, when you really sit down and listen to some of these stories, of, of the, what people are going through, it's it's hard not to have your you know melt your heart. You know what I mean? It's like these are real people going through real, like real issues, and you know sometimes it takes a little bit of a outside the box thinking to be able to give them optimal care, right? Yeah, and our expectations. If you if you in turn, uh, Jeff, I know quite well, and uh, I, I actually listened to the show with him, so it was uh, it was excellent. Uh, the oh, thanks. If you if you're a, a treating physician or healthcare worker, and you say you've figured this out, and look at these, uh, look at my practice, then you you're targeting the wrong people. I mean the the 15 people that I have on the MySafe machine, they've all done remarkably better. Are they like, you know, is their lives back together after three months? No. You know, I talked to three of them yesterday. I mean, they, they all say they're doing better, but the one person I spent most time with yesterday, his, uh, his sister died like three days ago. He's used wow. more drugs the last two days. Like that's the way people cope with things, you know? He's like almost all apologetic. You know, I was doing really well on the program, but I started using some fentanyl yesterday. Like, and so... These are expected are, you know, people, I can't, you know, change 20 years of trauma for people in a month, you know, it's a, it's a long, long healing process that people need. And I think, you know, my main role is just to allow people some openings so that they can work through this trajectory. And my expectation isn't that 
you'll stop using all drugs. I, I think that's just not realistic for most people. They, it's, it's a process. They got there. It took them a long time to get there. It's going to take them a long time to get out. And it's not hopeless. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my feeling about uh, recovery and how people put pressure on it's the people in at least that I'm familiar with over my 20 years of experience, there's nobody that had like, we're clear sailing, tried drugs one weekend, hit rock bottom, and now we're going to recover. These are most people's life trajectory isn't like that, that people were struggling along with all kinds of things happening to them, all kinds of trauma. Drugs became part of their solution, and they've continued to do that. But everything in the background has continued to be messy and uh, traumatic, and, uh, and it's very hard to recover from that. And so mm -hmm. we have to get away from this idea that we're going to miraculously, you know, turn, do a 180, and, you know, your life's going to be totally different now because I've done something for you. Your life could be improved and heading in a different direction because of things I can do for you, but it's not instantaneous. And I think Jeff would have the same feeling that this is a long process for people. There's no quick fixes here. And the least we can do is offer them medications that they can use without killing themselves. <laughs> and so that's yeah. kind of at the bottom line. People aren't going to recover or ever going to get another trajectory if they're dead. And that's kind of my bottom line. And I've just seen too many people die. There's just no second chance when you inject that lethal fentanyl dose. A hundred percent. I wonder, Mark, maybe we could even walk people through the the program like we mentioned there's 15 patients but like what all does it entail so it's been a long long road to do so i really feel I, there's two two barriers one is the whole discussion about safe supply so does the medical community and governments and the public feel that we should be offering people pharmaceutical supply of the drugs they want. And that's a huge hurdle. And that's an ongoing discussion. And I think in BC, you know, we just have some new guidelines that kind of give physicians, uh, you know, some assurance that it's okay to do this, but it's not going to happen overnight, we can't flip a switch. And the other thing is using technology in public health. So I felt that the only way to scale this and operationalize this was using technology, we people as much as we think connection's really important and we need to you know, really be around for people, most people using drugs wanna do it quietly and have some autonomy over what they're doing. And by getting their pills out of a machine and being able to take them with them was I thought a huge way, a huge uh, step, like kind of safe supply 2.0. So I maybe bit off too much at the beginning thinking that people would accept technology but I persisted and got a machine in BC in, in 2019 and the, the in, in December. So I've had it going for about four months now. I wanted just to prove that and to test for myself. I, you know, it had never been done before. So I had questions myself. So I just handpicked five people to join the program just as a feasibility. Does does the biometrics work? Do the people use their hydromorphone? Is there problems with diversion? Is there issues with people being targeted because they're on the program? How does the software and reporting work? So there was, you know, things I needed to work out. It's up to 15, mainly because of compassion. 
because there's just so many people around who want a piece of it. And uh, a lot of people I knew. And uh, so we're up to 15. But since myself, I'm doing most of the prescribing and running the program. There's one colleague who's doing a few of the prescriptions now. And most of the support for the machine is volunteerism. So I don't have any real money to do this. The company Dispension is providing the machine and they're like close partners in this because they're working through, you know, modifications of the machine and the software also. So we've got those 15 people, the machine can hold 48. So, and basically it's like a big ATM. It's an 800 pound machine that's bolted to the floor. It's got a big video and a, a contact screen that people uh, can interface with and you, the biometrics we scan people's vein, internal vein pattern in their hand and they just stick it up to the machine and it welcomes them to the machine. So the, it's no pin numbers or cards or anything like that. And every pill coming out of that machine is tracked in real time. So I know that this person got four dilly eights at 7.30 this morning kind of thing. And that's in real time. I have a dashboard I can find, I can follow people. If somebody doesn't come for a couple of days, I can send out, you know, we need to find what happened to so-and-so. That hasn't happened very much. There's been no drop-offs, no dropouts, which is pretty remarkable for any program. So everybody wants to do it and continues to do it. People were coming four times a day initially because I was, you know, forced to be quite conservative with it. But after COVID hit, about a month ago, everybody now is getting once a day pickup. So I don't want to, uh, it, and so they don't have to come multiple times to the machine. Mm -hmm. They can be in and out of them of the room in like 15 seconds. So it's just put your hand up, bang, bang, the machine uh, dispenses it said. And then if you come back too early, it'll tell you, you have, you know, you can come back in 16 hours or something like that. So it's very regulated how much drugs come out of the machine. And I can follow up with people anytime. They can send messages on the screen and they can uh, message me. So it's very, wow. can be very interactive that way. Hmm. So the technology and it avoids all the, you know, right now, say, how would you get people safe supply? Well, they'd have to line up at a pharmacy or they'd have to have them delivered to their place. And in COVID, that just makes no sense. We don't really want people to do that kind of stuff. So, uh, the technology, I think, is really slick from an operational point of view. And uh, so I'm hope we're getting, um, there's five more machines now that are being um, made. Oh, really? And, uh, we have a bunch of community partners that we're setting up right now. And I'm hoping to get these five machines delivered within the next three or four weeks. So uh, we can scale wow. up. But I, I'm really, you know, I still don't have any funding for this. We're talking uh uh, seriously to Health Canada and other other uh, provinces uh, because this was a great idea in the beginning I think or very it was going to be very the only way to scale up safe supply but now with COVID it just makes all the more sense to uh, use automation and and technology to try and get this stuff out. Wow so Mark like I'm four years old you want a safe supply you are one of 15 patients you go to this machine, it will scan your hand and based on your vein pattern, be able to identify who it is, get that supply once a day. You get to in real time know whether they've taken the supply or not. And they avoid going into a pharmacy or wherever treatment center, getting their method, whatever it might be. They avoid going, like having to go in and out of, of facilities, keeping a safe distance from 
you know, other other people. Well, I got to give it to you. That's thinking outside the box and embracing some technology. That's it's pretty innovative, and and sounds like scalable. Like th- that machine does not sound very cheap, but maybe it's cheaper than a pharmacy. I'd, I'd have to think about that my uh, econ side, but yeah. So the the I mean, it's a you know they it's a company that I deal with uh, that the kind of face value of the machines about twenty five thousand dollars. Okay. Um, the way we're trying to roll it out is it's $2,500 a month, but that includes the enrollment station, the IT support, the setup, the reporting. So half of that almost is kind of the support that's needed for the IT. And most places, because we're just, we're, you know, we're modifying the IT, there's things that we're modifying as we go, putting more telemedicine um, capabilities because it could just be functioning as a telemedicine thing, basically. Right. So uh, for rural communities and things, so it's probably not worth buying one anyway. So, uh, so basically it's uh, yeah, about $2,500 a month, Mm -hmm. which is just a, you know, that's less than a, you know, a healthcare worker to, to monitor a program or give things out. And it still offers less than an overdose. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> you know great. what I mean, like an ICU admission. I mean, th- that first day of ICU admission range anywhere from you know three and a half grand to seven grand, well, even up to ten grand, depending on uh, you know how sick you are. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're thinking about prevention and potentially cost savings, what's been the feedback though for people in the community or you know some of the maybe conservative. Well, the, the community, I mean, again, I live in a bit of a bubble in the downtown east side. It's been hard to get kind of funders and the ministry to embrace this, but that's not totally unexpected with most innovations and in harm reduction that, you know, people, governments want to be showing proof that it works. And uh, I'm always faced with, well, what proof do you have? I said, well, I, like I have 15 people that are doing well on it after four months and I can give you some statistics, but it's just 15 people. So it's really a pilot stage now and we need to just roll it out more people and get some more solid data. But I have no, you know, there, there's no even slight concerns that I have that this could not be a scalable solution for uh, the regulations around it. So I have letters of support, strong letters of support from the business associations that are often anti-harm reduction in different cities. So they see this as a, why not give people a safe supply of drugs and why not use automation? The Vancouver Police Department is very pro this. They look at this as a crime prevention strategy. So why wouldn't, why are we asking people to go scrounge around for illegal drugs that causes so much chaos in the community why not do it so the the vancouver police and this municipality the city kennedy stewart the mayor of vancouver has been very proactive and very vocal about this so those so and then the community itself it's very supportive so uh the drug user groups and things so uh yeah it's really you know i think it's at a cusp where it could take off but i haven't you know there's there's no resources that have been allocated at to at this point I should say also that as far as the regulatory part goes, we haven't, you know, there was quite a lot of concerns from the College of Pharmacies and College of Physicians, but how I'm describing this as just a lockbox for people's drugs. So I'm still a doctor, I'm still writing prescriptions, the pharmacy is still recording them, they're still being dispensed, and now the 
people in the program have just signed a form that their medications can be dispensed through a safe, secure, regulated source. So it's it's basically a lockbox. And if people have very unsecure housing, how could we possibly give people like a, a you know a, a bottle of pills? And they where are they going to keep them? How are they going to keep them safe? They they they're mm. living in a tent. They walking around the streets. I mean, it's totally impractical. So this basically just gives them a safe lockbox to keep their own prescription. So I haven't challenged any of the current pharmacy regulations to uh, get this going. And yeah, no, I, it's pretty, like I said, innovative thinking outside the box. And, um, and I, from what you're describing, there's a, a lot of upside. Can you think Mark of, an individual or a story that's really where this innovation has really helped that person? Oh yeah. We've, I mean, we've done follow-ups. I mean, I spent, I've been kind of low profile the last few weeks. I was one of those uh, crazy people who went away for March break. So I had to stay in my house, (laughs) but, um, um, but no, I mean, I have, so I had a conversation or a FaceTime with, with a person just yesterday who now wants to uh, go to get a week supply. And he's been so like, he hasn't missed a dose. He was getting four times a day. And then I was giving him daily with COVID. And he's at the point where he's an older guy. He's uh, well, his birthday is exactly the same as mine. So he, he um, he's an older guy and uh, wants to, uh, wants to stay in his place. He has a stable place to live. He's been in it for a while and he wants to uh, get a week supply. And so uh, I said, yeah, you should pick it up at the pharmacy. Now there's no reason to come to the machine to get a week supply. You could, it's not hard for you to drop by a pharmacy once a week. So this guy went from quite unstable, buying fentanyl on the street, you know, being, you know, doing all kinds of stuff to get his drugs to now uh, being able to collect enough money to save enough money because he's getting the drugs for free to get stable housing. And now he's uh, now he can get it week supply. And so he, you thank, you know, I just get these effusive emails for our text messages from him. You know, this is, thank you. Thank you so much. This is changing. Wow. His life is totally changed than it was four months ago. It just, just miraculously changed. So, you know, not everybody's going to be like that. He's probably one of the few people that I think is ready for weekly because other people are still not in stable housing or still, you know, I, I think the one thing with liberalizing the safe supply is that we do have to recognize that people do have a compulsion and an addiction. And we're not really doing people a favor by giving them a week or two of these pills and hoping for the best because yeah. they'll come back for sure, in two or three days saying, uh, look, doctor, I, I don't have them anymore. Now I'm buying fentanyl. So it just doesn't do them any good. And it doesn't do, you know, the system any good to kind of give people more than they can actually handle. So I think most people should probably stick with daily pickups and they can monitor and adjust their drugs over the day. Um, but going beyond that for a lot of people is it's problematic for them and uh, pills will go missing. And, uh, and I've dealt with this over my whole career. I mean, you give people prescriptions and medications, they don't take them and they've lost them. Mm-hmm. They, they sold them. Exactly. So I think 
you know, this, this allows a very individualized approach. So we can program that machine in real time that you have to come twice a day or you can come once a day or you can, and it's all timed out. So we can, uh, in real time, regulate it. If people are in a bad stretch, we can tighten things up. If they're on a good stretch, we can loosen things up. So it's very, uh, very flexible way to, uh, to, to prescribe in real time. So, uh, so yeah, he's one guy yeah. that I think has done remarkably well. There's another guy I spent time with yesterday who, um, ironically, this guy, I saw him first when he was 19 years old, which is 20 years ago when he had very end-stage HIV and living on the mm. street. A First Nations guy, so such a sweet person, but had so much trauma in his life. And, you know, I just connected with him and got him on antiretroviral medications. And uh, if through my whole career, so you want to be bored with the story, but I gave a sort of public presentation in, at the science world in, in Vancouver around the overdose crisis. And, um, and <laughs> sorry. No, uh, take your time. Oh. I've told this story more than once, and so I, I didn't think it would really hit me, hit me. But so, anyways, he was in the audience, and uh, oh wow, he uh, he stood up, and I and I recognized him, and um, you know he um, sorry. <laughs> so I was amazed that he was still alive because I had. Um, I had moved to Ottawa and then I'd be back to another job. So I literally hadn't seen him for a decade. So I, you know, uh, he was doing okay when I was looking after him regularly, but I, you know, he, I didn't have, you know, any ability to, you know, keep in touch with him when I was moved away. We weren't like friends or anything, but I, I knew him very well. And um, so I said to the audience, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, thousands of patients over my career and, uh, and as physicians, you, you know, you hope you, you know, make a difference, but we really don't know. We're like a cog in the wheel, right? Of people's mm -hmm. lives and people come and people go and we do our best. And, um, but if there is one person that in my whole career that I had, uh, had an impact on and it was him, like, <laughs> and he was there, he was there. Yeah. I, I'd, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I saved his life. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Okay. I'm glad this is editable. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But Mark, isn't this exactly what we we do this for? Isn't this exactly what gets us up in the morning? Isn't this why this is why we we hustle? Like it's in a lot of ways, you know what we do often is thankless. And when you could, I, I mean, I honestly, I could not imagine that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it, like see like seeing him in the audience, the, the one, right. Yeah. Like, Oh my God. So uh, he was one of the first person I got on the machine. So he uh, is in the program and I saw him yesterday. So he came in when I was, I was around the machine he was a guy who said he was having a really tough time because his his uh, sister just died this week, 
and um mm. and he uh yeah we so so we talked quite a bit but he's he's still you know hanging in there the one fascinating thing about him also with the program is that he uh he isn't injecting them so the the pills are you know my assumption everybody's grinding and injecting them but um as we were sitting there, he prepared his hydromorphone pills that he just got out of the machine and snorted them up. And uh, he said, yeah, he's found this is really useful for him. And he's not using needles and uh, that uh, the, the route of administration that he's decided that he doesn't want to use needles anymore. But anyways, I, I think the the real, you know, heartwarming part of the story is that, uh, you know, the guy had uh, end stage HIV 20 years ago when treatment wasn't that effective, it's very hard to get people on these complicated regimes. We managed to do it. His HIV is under good control, but he still uses drugs. Like he's still, he's still, uh, you know, that's the way he's, he's a, he's had a lot of trauma in his life. It continues to happen. He's doing okay. But how I could, I couldn't live with myself knowing that there's so many people out there like that who are, you know, doing their best, but have to rely now on a, on a very dangerous drug supply and and he mm-hmm. will continue to use opiates for the foreseeable future and um if his only option is to buy fentanyl powder he is going to die and it seems mm-hmm. crazy after all he's been through and all the medical system he's been through to get him to the stage he's at that we would not offer him a lifeline that we we just say you know things are bad out there we know the fentanyl is going to going to kill a lot of people but we're not going to do anything. Almost like if coronavirus came and we just decided, ah, it's going to kill a lot of people, but eh, we're not going to be able to do anything. You know, it would be like oh. having a vaccine for coronavirus and telling people they can't have it. Like it's, yeah. you know, we have something, we have something that can totally prevent you from getting this. But yeah, you know, it's illegal, and uh, you know, we don't. You know, you know, it'd be better off if you just stayed in your house because vaccines, you know, we really don't want to give them to you. <laughs> so oh, it, no, it, it's, it's almost the same thing with the safe supply. Like we know what people are going to do and we're saying, well, you know, you should really stop, you know, um, that would be. <laughs> and it's an evidence based practice. And it's like you like when I think of the story of that of that young man, like where honestly wouldn't be alive for you unless you intervened you're a part of his puzzle of reducing his harm, keeping him out of our intensive care unit, keeping him, you know, uh, I'm having complications from other, like from injecting from, for example, and he's here and you, I mean, and he's, I don't know. I don't want to say he's necessarily thriving cause I don't know that, but he's, he's here. He's here. You know? Yeah. Wow. And I think that's a, that's a huge message too. So I think that, our expectations have to be like, that's his life, you know? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a libertarian kind of person, but I mean, who am I to continue to punish this guy or in a society and continue to punish this guy because he's, he's wired to drugs? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know my, that, that's the kind of most, you know, unreasonable response we could ever come up with. Like this, mm-hmm. you have an issue with your addiction and the only thing I'm going to do is punish you for that over and over and over again until you decide you're going to stop. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. Like this is, you know, there's an issue here. It's very problematic for you to be doing this. How can we make it safer? How can we make your life better? 
Yeah. Not how can we make it worse with this, some kind of this ridiculous idea that if we make things so bad for people, they will stop. And that is just not our experience. That is like a hundred percent not our experience. So it's, it's about you know honestly, Mark. It's it's more about making it like not making about our ideals, but making about what's going to work for them. Because I I think this is a theme I'm. I think a lot of problems stem from is I'm putting my judgment on how things should be yeah. as opposed to like, what's a solution that's going to work? Do you know like, how am I going to be able to execute knowing what our goals are and knowing who the person in front of me is? Yeah. Like we don't ask that question enough, not only in medicine and life in general, but like, that's what it really, when it comes down to it, when you, you want to just like dissect it, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And pro- yeah. and in addiction, as, le- as all through medicine, we become very protocol driven. This is the evidence. Oh, yeah. These are the protocols. Check off all these boxes and then we're, we're do- we've done great. Here's my bill. <laughs> like, and yeah. so we, we've left very little flexibility in the system because they, these are the rules that you have to follow. And then Sometimes, ironically, we get new evidence that that's the dumbest rule we could have ever had, and we switch it all up. So, you know, it's it's really we tend to be just blindfolded and uh, not really look at the situation we're dealing with. And it couldn't be more true with addiction, which is really so many social factors involved in this, and not really, um, you know, that we could go on another whole thing about medicalization of addiction, you know. It mm-hmm. serves some purposes to say this is a medical problem and should be hand- treated like any other disease, but it's not really. It's a social problem, and we don't have a lot of the solutions are not medical at all. They're they're much more social, and so uh, mm-hmm. we do damage to people and the system when we try. The medicalization of addiction is a is also have some unintended consequences. Amen, brother. <laughs> You know, Mark, this has been so much fun. And honestly, we're going to be doing this again because I, I, I'm now recalling a few points that we I thought about in our uh, conversation beforehand. And it kind of reminded me when we start talking about evidence-based practices and people thinking like tying to like abiding too hard by protocols and so forth. But regardless, thank you so much for doing the show. I learned a lot. I, I know my audience is going to be learning a lot here. I love the out, out, outside the box thinking, and I think we should be embracing that more in medicine. And uh, once again, stay safe. And thanks so, so much for doing this. Okay. No, my pleasure. I didn't get this chance to say that this you're the Michael Franti of, uh, of healthcare <laughs> podcast. So, <laughs> so uh, I like your intro music and things. So let's. Oh, yeah. I'll t- I'll- Oh yeah, that's what we also got to talk to some beats. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah. a I'm a music enthusiast, and I, Ida, our mutual friend, I forgot she told us about some of the she told me about some of the concerts you guys have been to. But uh, uh, we're Ida gonna Satter. talk about this. Yeah, yeah, I went to med school with Ida. Oh, I didn't know that actually. Oh, I didn't tell you that. Oh no, my no. goodness. Okay, okay. Well, we're gonna shut this down. Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening, and we're gonna talk about what we just talked about. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. By the way, that interview took place April 21st, 2020. Just to put things into context, if you want to subscribe, follow us, we're all over the place. Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, at Quadcast. Leave comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. we got a 
mega episode coming June 1st, 7 p.m. Eastern, talking about lessons from COVID, featuring Dr. Brian Goldman and Dr. Jane Philpott, former Minister of Health, and the one and only Andre Picard. So please jump on that train. Stay tuned for more information. Otherwise, everyone out there, stay healthy, stay tuned, and um, stay safe.